friends, and welcome to Something to Talk About, a podcast where different people come together to talk about the Word of God and the various ways it applies to our lives. This season, we are talking about the book of John and what it means for our lives to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I'm Amber Barrett, and joining Aaron and me in conversation today are pastors John Barrett and Chris Williams. They're giving each other a fist bump. (laughs) Can't see it. We're going to talk a little bit about how the four of us know one another. You might get a little clue by the fact that John and I share the same last name. Amber and I met because of my roommate, Jason Cochran. Uh, Amber went to college with Jason and was living in Augusta as a youth intern. And Jason introduced us. And it's been a blissful (laughs) 20 plus years. (laughs) Yes, that's exactly what you're supposed to say. I will say the one thing I knew about John is that he seemed like a really cool guy and a lot of the girls liked him and he just didn't date anybody. So when Jason said, hey, I think I'm going to suggest to John that he asked you out on a date. I said, oh, no, 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 don't. He's going to say no. But he said yes. And 20 years later, here we are. He was waiting for the right one. He was waiting for the right one. Mm -hmm. All right, Chris Williams, you are our fellow pastor to John, work with Aaron and I as well. We enjoy you, appreciate you. And I'm going to let both of you give a short bio on yourselves, and then you're going to answer our first things first question. So you're going to give the bio first, then answer the question. The question is, when was the first time you went to the hospital for an injury or an illness? And Chris, you get to kick us off and you're smiling. So I am looking forward to this story. All right. So my name is Chris Williams. I am married to the lovely Sarah Williams. We've been married for eight years now. I have three lovely kids, Naomi, who is seven, Mila, who's six, and Ezekiel coming up from the rear, uh, who's two years about to be three. Terrible twos. Oh, he has unending energy (laughs) and he likes to fight. His dad in particular. Oh, brother. Instead of his sisters. That's probably <laughs> It good. is better than the sisters. So how did I end up in the hospital? So I had to do some digging. Talked to my parents earlier this week. Oh, did it was when real I was research. Two, I did some real research for this. Mm-hmm. I was two years old. And you know what had happened. My, we were visiting my grandmother in the hospital. Obviously, I don't remember this. My dad loves to eat peanut butter. Uh-oh. Anybody who knows Uh-oh. me, even a. A tad knows I am deathly allergic to peanuts. But my dad didn't know that when I was two years old. So we were leaving the hospital. And as any good father wants to share what you enjoy with your kids. So we were in the car, my mom and dad. He leaned over, gave me a peanut butter cracker. They say I scarfed it. So maybe I do like peanut butter. (laughs) Or like to eat. Or like to eat. (laughs) The latter is definitely true. And as they drove down Broad River Road in Columbia, they looked back and noticed that I was going into anaphylactic shock. I was a different color than I was when they left the hospital. So my mom quickly told my dad to turn this car around. They had to take me to the hospital. When I was in the hospital, the the doctor was like, in case you don't know, your son is deathly allergic to peanuts. That was the first time I ended up in the hospital. My goodness, that is a scary story. My youngest is allergic to peanuts. And I remember his first reaction, but it was not anaphylactic. He got just like a rash and threw up. And I just was so surprised. But if the first time that happens to you and you don't anticipate it all, it's pretty frightening. It is scary. And every subsequent hospital visit has probably been because of peanuts. (laughs) Really? Yes. Do you just accidentally get them? Always. Yeah. Accidental consumption. And the reality is it's going to happen again. Oh, you carry an EpiPen? My wife does. (laughs) (laughs) That tells us a lot about you, Chris. We love that. 
<laughs> All right, amazing. John Barrett, beat that. Oh, my word. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yes, John Barrett, uh, I carry many titles. The most important one for the podcast is the husband of Amber Barrett. Um, as she shared before, I'm sure we have three young boys, growing boys, though, actually. Creed is an adult now, 18, and we have Jack, who's 16, and Cody, who is 14, Came to faith through the church, and I've been a pastor in one form or fashion or director of ministry for the past 20 years. So people are getting younger, and I'm getting older at the church, I've realized recently. My first hospital experience that I remember was in seventh grade. A bit of context is that on Christmas Eve, our family would share individual family gifts with one another, sibling gifts. So my older brother, Chris, two years older than myself, gave me a Nerf basketball uh, goal with a little ball. This would have been at the end of the night. Dinner had been served. The kitchen was cleaned and everything was getting settled down for the energy for the next day for Christmas Day. My brother and I went upstairs. I was in seventh grade starting to go through adolescence thinking that I was increasing strength against him. We were playing Nerf basketball. At some point I tried to dribble through his legs. He turned and I felt two hands push me <laughs> To this day, he says that did, that did not happen. The next thing I know, I went uh, flailing into the drywall, the corner oh, no. board where two pieces come together. I remember seeing pieces of my teeth um, oh. chip and fly out of my mouth. And the next thing I know, I see stars. Two seconds later, blood just running down my face. I turn back and look at my brother. His eyes nearly pop out of his head and he runs off. I pick up a dirty sock on my floor. Because um, <laughs> there were several. <laughs> multiple. Um, and I ran into the adjacent bathroom with a sock on my head, pulled it off briefly, looked at my head, and nearly passed out. I walked downstairs with a dirty sock on my head. My dad was reading the paper, I'm sure just enjoying Christmas Eve. And I said, Dad, I need to go to the emergency room. He paused. I said, no, Dad, I'm serious. I need to go to the emergency room. He flipped down the paper the uh, sock was saturated at that point, blood coming all over my clothes. And oh, he no. said, uh, yes, we do. And so I spent Christmas Eve until 2 a.m. and went back to school. I remember this as a seventh grader with a four inch by four inch bald spot right in the center of my head. Oh, my word. <laughs> so if you look carefully at my head, I have a good little uh, 14, 15 stitches that came from that experience. Yeah, you have the scar, not the stitches anymore, of course. That's but you got 14 true. to they did 15 come out. stitches. Yeah. <laughs> they did come out. That's fortunate. Scar. <laughs> Scar. Oh. Chris, we're going to need you to call in and verify the story. Brother Chris, not Pastor Chris. Brother Chris. or Oh, Pastor Chris. I was about to lean over and look and see what I could find. <laughs> Thomas, no, Thomas your... feels the scars. <laughs> They're really doing it, y'all. They're really doing it. It is validated. There is a legitimate scar. I just want to hear your brother's side of the story. Also, your teeth. Like I, My son also just bonked out a permanent tooth, so I'm trying to check out your teeth so I can get oh, an yeah. idea of what's in our future. It was more on the back side of them. Okay. You can't really tell, baby. You can't really <laughs> yeah, they tell. They look great. Great. Um, so I did not do any research. I think I probably surely had some earlier injuries before this. I had two brothers growing up in the middle of nowhere, just acres and acres and acres of BB guns and 22s and who knows what else that was going on in these woods. But the trampoline was the thing that got me that I remember my brother's friend had been over. He's turning backflips. I'm like, oh, that's so cool. I want to turn backflips. That's my goal in life. And it was before the, or at least in my 
growing up, we did not have the little that thingy around it. And so I'm out there practicing my gymnastics so I could go to the Olympics <laughs> in trampoline sports or something. Yeah. Mm hmm. And uh, I still have a nasty scar on my forehead, too. Like, I can only do a uh, right part because the left side, the scar is, like, right in the front, and it's pretty gross. Huh. But same thing. I went inside, like, blood dripping down my face. Like, I don't even think I knew I needed to go to the emergency room. But my mom was like, okay, we're going to the hospital. Just blood everywhere. So you were trying to turn that backflip, and uh -huh. you didn't make it all the way around, and you bumped yeah, your head on the, the edge? Springs. Yep. Yeah, mm -hmm. the, the springs on the noggin. Mm. Not a good combo. Mm. Fortunately, mine was right in the middle, so I could never do a center part. But I think that's actually oh, worked man. out well for me. I don't know the uh, what are the new kids called Gen Z? The, yeah. the the middle parts in maybe not for the dudes for the girls. I mm. tend to be trendy. I'll probably do it. Lie. <laughs> do some research on that, Grace. You can come up with a big fat X. <laughs> All right. Well, since we're talking about scars, I'm going to match y'all. I do not have a scar on my head, but well, I guess technically I do. I have it on my face and it's up on the top part of my nose, which nobody can really see because it's kind of a small scar at this point. But it came because my grandparents had a dog and it was a sweet dog, but an old dog and it liked to sleep underneath the table. And I was about three and I just loved all things cuddly. So I wanted to cuddle the dog and I climbed underneath the table to give the doggy a hug. But the doggy did not want a hug. And he let me know that by biting my face. Oh, no. And so I don't really remember. In fact, I don't remember at all getting bit. I do remember the story of my dad taking that dog um, by the scruff of its neck and tossing it and being very upset with the dog and then... I was taken to the hospital and I received some stitches in my face. And the worst part of that to me was the reaction I had to the medicine that they gave me, I guess, to numb me up or to whatever it was. It caused me to hallucinate. So that's what I remember laying in my bed. It was a bunk bed and being dead certain there were spiders crawling on my Holly Hobby wallpaper, mm. just up and down my Holly Hobby wallpaper and being freaked out by that. So it wasn't real, but I couldn't determine that it wasn't real. Yeah, and that, and that stuck with me more than dog, the dog bite. So the scariest part of my experience was the fact that I couldn't discern what is real. And I didn't know what to believe. And obviously it left me with a very scary feeling. So one thing I've particularly appreciated, making a little transition here, about the Gospel of John, as we've been studying it this semester, is John's commitment not to leave his readers, not to leave me in the dark or in uncertainty, or not sure what is real in regards to the identity of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. As we've mentioned each week in this season, in our intro, and as John clearly states himself, his gospel was written so that his readers would believe that they would see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing they would have life in his name. You know, seeing Jesus clearly in the book of John means that not only have we grown as we've sat around this table, Aaron and I, and y'all, as you've just studied John, we've grown in our knowledge about him, but we have hopefully simultaneously grown in our knowledge of him. Because, you know, Jesus, as we've learned, is not a name that encapsulates a set of ideas or religious beliefs. He's a person who comes to us, who encounters us, who changes us, and who calls us into relationship with him through faith. And Jesus makes himself known to his people, and John participated in Jesus's purpose of self-revelation by making him known to his readers. For me, Don Carson's outline of John helped to make that clear. And Don Carson's outline, very general form, says, Section 1, Jesus' self-disclosure in word and deed, basically chapters 1 through 10. 
And then there's a transition where it highlights the life and death, king and suffering servant, 11 through 13. And then Jesus's self-disclosure and his cross and exaltation, chapter 13 through the end of the book. So those are the two big points, Jesus's self-disclosure in word and deed. And then Jesus's self-disclosure in his cross and exaltation. And that's what we're going to be reviewing today as we go along, talking about what did Jesus show about himself? And one of the big ways Jesus revealed himself in the book of John that's unique to John that John includes are the seven I am statements. And several of them are found in those first 10 chapters. We have, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. You know, John, Chris, what are some of those I am statements that recently have had meaning to you and why? John, why don't you kick us off? I do enjoy um, not just each individual I am statement, but I've, I've enjoyed the progression of them as well. Just how with each I am statement, Jesus does seem to be revealing more and more of who he is. So I do like looking at them as a whole. But if I were to identify one of the ones that has always meant the most to me, when that question is asked, I immediately go to John chapter 6. Perhaps my favorite chapter in the whole of the Bible, it's the I am the bread of life. It's this picture of Jesus feeding thousands. It's happened twice in the Gospels. There's this, it's this echoes of the Old Testament of God feeding his people in exile and giving them a life to sustain them. And here's this picture of Jesus in the New Testament, the same idea that I am the bread of life, the one who will sustain you in your theological exile. But what I like the most about that statement, though, is that Jesus knows us, that no matter how many I am statements he gives his disciples, there's always this lack of belief. We still just don't get it. So right after this, I am the bread of life, you know, he walks on water, and then the next day they come back to him. They say, uh, do you have any more bread for us? And he's, you just don't get it. You've seen, but you don't believe. And then he pauses. And then within that chapter, if that's my favorite chapter, my favorite three verses, verses 37 through 39, Jesus says that here in 37, all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me will never be cast out. So here is one of the most beautiful portraits of the nature of our salvation. It's a picture of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit coming together in this unity, saying that those to whom I have called, I will in fact save, and they will never be lost. And Jesus reiterates that in verse 39. He says, all this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that the Father has given me, but will raise them on the last day. So what Jesus is in fact saying is that I am the bread of life, that I am the essential ingredient to giving you life. Well, how do I know that? And Jesus comes back strong and says, you have the promise of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that those to whom I save they will never, ever be lost. And I don't know about for you all, but for people whom I love, uh, people who are my life, the own, my own doubts at times, and I place myself at the end of my life, and I, there's going to be this moment where I'm going to be closing my eyes, and I'm going to entrusting my soul to the Lord. And here we have a promise that Jesus says that because of a promise he made before the beginning of time, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because I am his, he will never lose me. And so to me, that just gives me the assurance that helps me know who Christ is and helps me know all the promises that are mine in him. I appreciate how you're mentioning that we could look at those I am statements individually, and we do. 
but they do all go together to say that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and these are all components that all work in all of that together. And it's just all, I just am encouraged, as you're saying that, to remind myself, yeah, Jesus knows me even more than I know Jesus. And so sometimes I think if it's my pursuit of knowledge of him, but that it's his pursuit of me, his knowledge of me, and that assurance that you are talking about right there, that he comes to his own and his own know him and he pursues us and, and saves us. And I appreciate that perspective. What do you think, Chris? Well, for me, as I think about the I am statements, one, I just appreciate even that question you asked with the significance. Is this reality that God's word, who Jesus is, has everything to do with my life? And I think that that shapes which particular I am statement is crucial for me right now. Let me just give you a little bit of life context. I'm just in the thick of life and ministry. And sometimes I think that has like a negative connotation. But when I mean thick, I mean life and life abundant. Mm. I have a wife and kids to love and lead. I have responsibilities with our young adults, various responsibilities at this church. So much responsibility that I am often reminded that I need to be led before I do all of the leading. Mm -hmm. So I probably showed my my hand here. Uh, the, The I am statement, Jesus saying I am the good shepherd is one that has just been hitting home for me in particular, um, for several reasons, a, a couple verses out of John 10 that Jesus says in verse three, he says to him, the gatekeeper opens the sheep, hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then in verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. So in this particular season of life, first, seeing how Jesus is my good shepherd, he he knows me fully. All these relationships I have and I appreciate them and I love them. But there is one anchoring relationship that I have, and that's with the good shepherd who knows me fully. And I, through his spirit, know him. But not only that, he's leading me with my family, with the ministry that God has put before me. He's guiding and directing me. And therefore, that gives me confidence that I can guide, lead and direct those whom he has put in my care, be it my my family or those who I minister to. And then lastly, even this particular verse where he says he lays his life down for his sheep is a reminder that in the midst of all these responsibilities, I fail. And I fail a lot. And uh, sometimes there's a bit of self-preservation. Sometimes there's this, I need to fix and clean things up. And it is just a healthy reminder to know that the shepherd has said, in all of your shortcomings, in all of these various roles and responsibilities that you have in your shortcomings, I have laid my life down for you. So in this particular season, with all the relationships, with all the responsibilities, knowing that I have a shepherd, uh, a good shepherd, who is guiding me, leading me, who knows me, and who has laid his life down for me is of particular significance and importance. Chris, I love how you're bringing out how the Lord meets us in different seasons and how his word ministers to us in different ways, depending on where we are in our life. 
And um, some of you may know, like this, I guess the end of this year, Brad had a little health scare and it was a terrifying time for us. And this study in John leading up to Easter Sunday, I don't know who planned that, Amber Barrett, but <laughs> it was a good, I love just meditating over this uh, gospel is the word I was looking for. I love meditating over the gospel of John leading up to Easter. It's been super meaningful. And so for me, I feel like just thinking about how Christ is the resurrection and the life because of my life story, I feel like death can be a main character. It looms large in my story. And so for me, when I'm looking at my husband with this health scare, I'm thinking, oh, no, here it comes. Death is this thing that's going to take from me again. And praise the Lord, spoiler alert, I guess, like Brad's great. Everything's fine. But in that moment, I think that when our faith is pressed and the veil is thin that we kind of see, I think the Lord graciously exposes some of the places where our faith needs strengthening. And I think that he's telling me, like showing me in this account of how he's the resurrection of the life, that his victory comes through suffering. And the anointed one that was promised in scriptures, like in the Old Testament, the Messiah is one that was promised that he would come, he would be anointed, he would have victory, but it would come through suffering. And you see that in, with Jesus, you see that in our own story, that he brings us new creation through dying to ourselves and that he gives us new life, abundant life, like you were talking about. And it is beautiful to meditate on that. So I've just loved hearing from y'all what you had to say and then also just meditating on it through this Easter season. Aaron, you mentioned in the fact that our study did align with getting to the end of John as we were approaching Easter and going through Holy Week. I did love that timing as well. And then I had the added bonus of sitting in John's Sunday school class because he covered Holy Week during the week leading up to Easter. And what I appreciate that he brought out to me, and I want him to talk about this a little bit, is the fact that John moves pretty quick through a good chunk, at least half of, no, the gospel writer, oh, John. Oh, you talking about the gospel? I thought you were talking about your husband. <laughs> the evangelist. Oh, he can move. John the he evangelist. <laughs> That's right. Similar holiness. Hilarious. <laughs> he is the faster one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're right. You're right. John does run faster, right, in this book. Anyway, he commented on how the gospel writer, John, goes at a quick, pretty quick pace for the first 10, 13 chapters, and then he slows it way down. He covers three years, and he covers one week, essentially. And that was really helpful to me, just to see that emphasis put there. So, John, talk a little bit about what you learned as you taught through Holy Week and just the gospel writer's John's intention to slow us down and keep us there. It was a book titled The Final Days of Jesus, and it was so rich to me each and every week studying it, not only sorting out the details of what actually happened in the week leading up to Easter. Prior to that, I knew that you're supposed to get really sad on Good Friday, and you're supposed to be really happy on Easter, but there's so much more activities leading up to that that just help both of those days bring out their individual significance. But I thought about this question about what part meant the most to me, and it really was the post-resurrection events that landed on me in a new way with three different people. Uh, first of all, as we know, Mary Magdalene was one of the first people to be at the tomb, and it's thought that she went there with five or six other women, and once Mary saw that his body was gone, she left immediately and ran back to tell the disciples, and the other women would have stayed. Eventually, she came back to the tomb, and that's when she was engaging with this one that she thought was the gardener, and then immediately she knew his voice. And when she heard his voice, she immediately began to weep and cry and cling to him. 
And I just had this thought that when I think of what often keeps me distanced from the Lord, there's just, for those of us who's come to faith later in life, that our past shame of a life before Christ can often keep us from the real belief that He loves me. And here's this one who's had seven demons removed in this, uh, you know, life that would not be in the Lord. But at that moment, when she heard her Savior's voice, she brought all her past, and she was there with them. And then you move to Thomas, right? Thomas filled with doubts, and Jesus meets him there as well. And I think of all of us can relate to just doubts, like, Lord, is it true? Is it really true? And Jesus came to him and individually ministered to him, made himself open to allow Thomas to touch him. But as much as I enjoy the story of Mary Magdalene and Thomas, I really think it's been the story of Peter that has been most significant to me this Easter season. As you know, right at the end of the Gospel of John, Peter and the other disciples are fishing. They see this man appear on the shore and John recognizes him to be Christ, and immediately, I just put myself in Peter's spot. I see Christ, and what would come across my soul would be my failures, and I would not want to jump in the water. I would not want to approach him. I'd actually want to get underneath the bow of the ship to hide myself what I've done. And here you have Peter jumps in the water and goes to be with him. So there must have been a way in which Christ ministered to Peter throughout his life to convince him of his love and allow an emotional response to be that which was his first response. I think of both Mary and Peter at this moment where they recognized the Lord, past life, present failures, but what came across was love and worship. So for my own life, what I would like to see is that when I experience the presence of the Lord, that my first thought is not myself, but how much the Savior, my Savior, loves me and calls me to worship Him and to emotionally respond to all that He's done for me. I like how you're drawing that out and how it's an uninhibited response. And it is, I think, difficult for us sometimes to show up and worship the Lord. Sometimes we bring our own inhibitions And I love how you're seeing that they're just worshiping in their raw self-expression of the Lord has met me. He has loved me and I cannot help but pour out my love. What kind of savior prompts you in the midst of your failures to jump out of the boat and rush to him? And he must have loved Peter like that. Peter would have known that experience before that moment of Jesus's love. In the midst of failures, we know he has, right? It's before he restored him, right? So he didn't even even know the story that was about to take place. I'm actually restoring him to that. I will jump out of a boat once I'm restored, once I know the Savior's love and he's demonstrated it. But Peter had it in the deep-seated place of his heart that he wasn't waiting on that restoration before he's willing to jump out in those. So I just... Well, and Jesus had cared for him in in similar ways. I think about when he told Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. You know, that's a strong rebuke. And yet I still have absolute love for you. You still belong to me. I mean, it's a small example of that. But then I think you're part of the way that we see Jesus loving his disciples and then also loving us because this overflows into how he cares for us is what we see as he's given that final discourse as he's serving 
that final meal as he is talking with his disciples, praying for them. Chapters 13 through 17, you see all of those things taking place, and Jesus is telling them what's going to happen. Yeah, He's telling them who he is, how he's going to supply for them, how he's going to comfort them, how he's going to protect them, how he's praying for them. They don't get all of those things. They don't understand all of those things. They understand some of those things later. But he's taking that very precious time to communicate who he is and what his love is in such a way that it secures their faith mm-hmm. in him. And you know, one of the things that he tells them in that time is that I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And Chris, I was thinking as you read that statement and you minister in particular to young adults where the whole idea of the way, the truth, the life may not be all that popular. Talk to us a little bit about how that statement has challenged you personally as you minister to young adults. First, you know, in the context of of John 14, when Jesus says this statement, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, uh, Thomas has asked him a question. Lord, we do not know where you're going because Jesus has just told him, in my father's house, there are a lot of rooms and I'm going to prepare that for you. And he, Thomas, I guess he, this is down in Thomas, so he always got questions. Concrete thinker. <laughs> Con- concrete thinker. He was like, so if you're going somewhere. You haven't given me the the roadmap yet. So how will I get there? And Jesus, uh, I appreciate John writing it so quickly after the question. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one will come to the Father except through me. And it's funny that this was the particular text I, I got to think through because first, it was one of the first ones I memorized, I think, because it's loaded with so much truth in such a uh, a terse verse. <laughs> Terse verse. Uh, terse verse. I'm a, y'all didn't know I was a rapper. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> I think you but, could market that. Oh, yeah. I might do that. I might do that. Kit. I might do that. But uh, so much truth. And uh, one that I've seen personally, and then this kind of flows into ministry, there is a pervasiveness of social media. And I am not anti social media. I think social media is amazing. But with the, the pervasiveness of social media uh, and more particularly the rapid dissemination of just so much information regarding any subject in every subject, uh, subjects that are very important uh, to subjects that are trivial. You can gather so much information at your fingertips. Uh, the people who are speaking, some claim to be experts. Others claim to be, I, I know this through experience. And I think the response of Christians can be uh, there can be fear to engage that there can be fear to engage it. But there's also can be this temptation to assume everything is true that you read or watch on TV. And what I've found particularly comforting about this particular truth is not just that Jesus promises I'm the way that you get to the Father through me, but he promises that I am the truth. And he draws a line in the sand about who he is and not just who he is, but uh, how that can be applied to real life. Therefore, uh, I think the, the fear of engaging the marketplace of ideas isn't quite so fearful because we are anchored in the one who is true. Mm-hmm. And I know even for me, I don't have social media. So I always have this deep rooted fear that I'm missing out on mm-hmm. all this information that's swirling around. And I don't, I don't have it, but I am reminded personally 
that I have this truth and this truth has promised that he is both the way and the life. And that uh, flows into my ministry uh, for young adults. This is a for those who are past their 20s. We remember the 20s were a time of transition. Uh, I would say that really marks that young adulthood where you're transitioning from college to post-college. You're transitioning from being primarily a consumer to someone who produces in the life and the world around them. Young adults are trying to build grooves and habits, social life, church life, work life. They're starting careers. There's so much, and all these are great things, but the one who is true has said, life is found in me. Life is found in me. So no amount of what I want to continue to put before our people is there is no amount of earthly stability, no amount of vocational progress that can compete with the life giving person of Jesus. So really wanting to help them orient his life giving self in the center of all this transition and to make him a, a part of daily habit. So the reality is that in the midst of all of this change, uh, Jesus as the truth promises life and somehow we go back to john 10 i keep showing my car life and life abundantly gotta add that little thing <laughs> well i like that and i like that connection because when you think that as the truth he gives life and sometimes we don't hold those ideas together in our culture that if there is one truth that means lack of life if i have to go according to a truth that's not maybe my own truth and you're going to narrow me down like that you're going to rob me of something Instead of you're going to give me something really good. So I just liked how you put words to that. The idea that if you're accepting all sorts of truths from all sorts of places and all sorts of people and nobody holds more sway, you know, than one than the other, then you're just left afloat. But if there really is a God who is the truth, the way, and he gives life through that, he doesn't restrict you through that. That's something worth pursuing. So I liked how you put words to that. Absolutely. And you can really be unleashed to be, to live life in this world. Instead yeah. of being uh, just blown up, yeah. blown around with nothing that's mooring you to the ground, whether it be theologically or any kind of conviction. So, yes, mm -hmm. it's uh, it's a powerful verse that yeah. has a lot of application to young adults. I think it, just even the connection you're making that the relativism is rampant, I guess, with this generation in saying that truth leads to life abundant versus I mean, the opposite of that is death and cursing. We see that in the biblical narrative. So then it makes it easy, like you're saying, Amber, to choose between do you want a life of blessing in life or do you want a life of death and cursing? Mm -hmm. it, you see a lot is at stake there. Like if you're going to draw the, the line in the sand, I think that's part of what's so fearful uh, of why uh, in this particular age we don't want to draw a line in the sand. Because the question is, what if I'm wrong? Mm -hmm. Whereas when you, you know this syncretism. Where you're trying to bring a little of this, a little of that, as long as I have a little Hedge of that spree. Uh, yeah. You know, whereas Jesus is drawing a line in the sand and says, Oh, I can say I'm both the way and the life because it, I am truth. Mm -hmm. uh, you can draw a line in the sand about any of these issues uh, that you are dealing with mm -hmm. because uh, life is going to be found there because this is true. Mm -hmm. Well, and then we jump off that into the fact that Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Right. I'm the life that comes from the resurrection of the dead, the one that has dealt with the death and the cursing that you inevitably were going to experience and be caught in and bound to. And yet through my death and then my resurrection, 
I give you life and it's new life. It's not life of your own making. It's not life that you drove up within yourself. It's not life that you own. It's life that I have given to you freely and it's new and it's good. So let's talk about that last statement just to finish this off here. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection, I am the life. It's not just general life, not just life in general. It's life in Christ. What does that statement mean for y'all personally? And what does it mean for you as you minister to other people? When Jesus came to his disciples again i'm post-resurrection here twice he came door was locked and all of a sudden here's jesus right and on both occasions he said the peace be with you and it wasn't until this recent reading of through that through the preparing for sunday school i always took that to mean i know y'all are really scared right now because all of a sudden the door was locked and here i am and yeah. I, I'm not saying that that's not part of what he was saying or that John was trying to capture because the Gospels are filled with irony in this last week of his life. But actually, it was so much more than that. This life that Jesus is saying is that life in me, a defining characteristic, it truly is peace. It's peace with God the Father. It's peace with humanity around you. And it's peace within your own soul. And it was almost a statement just on the heals of him being raised from the dead. He stands before them and says, this one thing that you needed the most in life is now before you, that my action brought you peace and that I am peace. And so life found in me, this resurrected life will give you this shalom that the Old Testament speaks of, peace that the New Testament speaks of. And ultimately, I think that's what abundance in life is. It's this feverish pace that can be in my heart, that we can see us around us, people just groping for the things that can make life work for them, and just to be settled and to say, I actually have the peace of Christ right now. So that statement to me was just ministered to me in new ways and to say, oh, there's more going on than just tell them don't be scared. Well, uh, even in John 11, when he says that he's the resurrection and life. When I'm reading through John 11 and I'm I'm following the drama of Lazarus being sick and his sisters trying to go get Jesus and Jesus seemingly dragging his feet and tearing. Uh, I'm just following the narrative and I'm I'm on the edge of my seat. And when Lazarus dies, a part of me is deeply troubled. Because there is this reality, and I, I appreciate Jesus weeping. I, I appreciate that even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus, he still cried because of the brokenness, because of death, because of his anger. Like it's in his deep in his bowels, he was frustrated at the effects of sin. And then it's like I leap for joy when he finally raises. Lazarus but the reality is that is merely a resuscitation to be honest because it's like he will die again uh, so when he finally gets to this point where he says I am the resurrection in the life and, and we see that he is very much alive as real as the five of us are at this table Jesus is alive and reigning and the fact that he identifies himself as the resurrection life just gives me the word I would say is so much hope in this life. Uh, I think there's a, a reality that I, I sense from the culture is like as you move towards old age or as you move towards 
uh, old age because of death or whatever. There's this, as John was saying, there is this fear, but only in the gospel can you say the best is yet to come. Like only, only in the gospel. I know Pastor Mike said that at uh, in his sermon last Sunday, but only in the gospel is the best yet to come. And that's because of Jesus's uh, reality of who he is, that I am the resurrection and the life. It, it, sometimes I have to pause and really think about that. I think about what Paul says, like, <laughs> sorry, I can go on a tangent with this, but he's like, we above, if this is not true, we above all people are to be pitied. So not only does this give me life, but it is a, uh, a life altering reality that shapes every part of my identity. Be- it, it shapes how I talk to my wife. It shapes how I talk to my kids. It shapes what I do with my life. It shapes all of these things because it is that big of, of an issue. So it gives me so much hope. It gives me a, a, a hope to move forward. Yeah, I think, I mean, I kind of mentioned on this or talked about this a little bit earlier, um, how Jesus' resurrection and life, it's the it's the ultimate coming of his kingdom where he's the true Passover. He's delivering us from sin and the enslaving power of being turned over to ourselves and even just reflecting on psalm one how we're delivered from our scoffing and mocking and um, the wickedness that is our baseline level so i think for jesus obviously he's bringing the new creation he's that the anointed one that since genesis 3 that the hebrew people were looking for and he invites us into that resurrection power. And it is through death. Like you can't have a resurrection without passing through death. So he is calling us to pass through death, calling us to partake in his suffering so that we might know that resurrection power and uh, and the coming of his kingdom, like knowing that we are living in, in his kingdom already and we're anticipating the fullness of the new creation. And that's thrilling. I think that's why we show up every Sunday to worship. You're talking about that's a heck of an appetizer. Like yeah, I'm like, that's right. if that's just the foretaste, what is the full consummation? Yeah. Is what trying to put words to it now is even overwhelming and mm-hmm. in some sense feels impossible. But I, I mean, just this is just a, a foretaste that mm-hmm. we're having right now, which is exactly why I show up every Sunday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my every kids Sunday. are obsessed with talking about what the new heavens and the new earth is going to look like. And it's just like all the good stuff, you know, like they're like, is there going to be skiing? Is there going to be a beach? Is there going to be, you know, whatever? It's like, sure. Yes. All, I believe all the good stuff. All the good stuff. All the good stuff. Well, go I don't ahead, know if Chris. I'm going to be on that. Even all the good stuff. I don't know if I'll be on those. Chris skis. in heaven, you'll be able to swim. Yes. <laughs> That's what I'm waiting on. Everybody keeps asking when will I learn. I'm going to be like, in the new heavens and the new earth. I'm going to swim like Michael Phelps. There you go. There you go. Well, what I what I love, even as we're laughing here, talking about that and and being kind of silly and in our that shared hope and joy, I'm thinking part of that question was how does that affect how you minister to other people? And y'all haven't said this in so many words, but if you want to know what keeps you showing up day after day to worship, it's life. And what keeps you showing up day after day to lead people into worship is that belief in that life and that experience of that life. And it's hard at times living 
in this world. It's hard at times ministering to people. It's hard at times when people don't minister to you well or whatever it is, but we show up day after day and you continue on in the ministry of the gospel because you believe it's life and you believe it's real. So really appreciate the two of y'all coming today. Enjoyed that conversation. John, you earned your dinner tonight. So (laughs) (laughs) there you go. We appreciate you being with us. Listeners, we hope you'll join us again next season. You'll notice I didn't say next week. Next season, we are kicking off a summer series that will begin in June, run through June and July and just the first part of August. And we are going to be talking about Wendy Alsup's book, Companions in Suffering. Wendy Alsup is a well-known author. She works with the Gospel Coalition, and she just has some wonderful things to say about what ongoing suffering looks like. She has an experience of that in her life. What do you do when suffering just doesn't let up? And what does that look like as you interact with God and as you interact with his people? And really, we just would recommend this book. You might say to yourself, why do I want to read something about suffering in the summer? I want a beach read or something easy or something nice. Kind of feels like a winter read, doesn't it? This is something that you read in winter. And those of you who do feel like you're in suffering, it feels like a continual winter of the soul. And you can understand why you want to read this book at any time. And some of you who may not be in suffering and don't really want to consider it, think, I don't want to read that. I want to read something nice and light. But just to remind you, you will hit a winter of the soul. And if you have something like this prepared beforehand, you are equipped uh, to walk through it in a different way. So just encourage you wherever you are in life. This is a great read. We'd love for you to join us. Wendy's actually going to be our first podcast guest. We will release that in June. And then we've got some women joining us from around Augusta, not just our FPC ladies this time, but we're bringing some other women in that we'd love for you to hear from. And so again, join us, Companions in Suffering. Wendy Alsup. Come back and find us in June. Hope you listen in. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian wife she sees. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. When comforts are declining. He grants the soul again A season of pure shining To cheer it after the rain 